Wetzel was 22 years old when he decided that he had to get his family free. He decided he had to do whatever it took to get them out from under the jackboot that was oppressing them. The year was 1978, and Gunther lived with his wife Petra and their two small children in the German Democratic Republic, or the GDR, which is often just called East Germany. After Germany's defeat at the end of World War II, the country was divided to prevent it from regaining power and from starting another world war. West Germany had been placed under the control of the United States, Britain, and France. And at this time, in the 1970s, circumstances there in the West provided the people with plenty of opportunity. They had political and personal freedoms and many avenues to improve their lives. But East Germany under control of the Soviet Union, was different. Salaries were very low. People often had to wait in line for many hours just to be able to buy whatever foods and products were available. And it was a society of secret police, suspicious friends, and forced party affiliations. Anyone could report another citizen to the government for being a subversive. And the punishments for something like voicing the wrong opinion about the government could be very, very severe. Somewhere between 200,000 and 250,000 East Germans were actually imprisoned for political reasons. And circumstances were getting worse each year. Political tensions were rising, and the economy was deteriorating. P.J. O'Rourke once said, East Germany was so total in its totalitarianism, that everything was banned which wasn't compulsory. It was also illegal for East Germans to leave the GDR permanently. And the Stasi, which was the state security service, they did everything they could to prevent people from leaving. The government built about 860 miles of walls and fences, stretching from the Baltic Sea in the north all the way down to what was then Czechoslovakia. And there were approximately 50,000 border guards stationed in watchtowers and heavily guarded checkpoints all along this border. These guards were sanctioned to shoot on sight anyone who was trying to escape. There were also landmines and self-firing devices placed along the border strip there. And many, many East Germans were killed while attempting to escape to the West. But in 1978... Gunter Wetzel said despite that, despite the enormous risk, he felt that he had to improve his family's prospects. He had to improve the opportunities available to his children. And he felt that he had to get them to West Germany. Mr. Wetzel gave an interview to The Sun Also Rises earlier this year, and he only speaks German, which I don't speak, so we relied on Armstrong College senior Josue Michel, who is from Germany, to translate for that interview. And for this episode, Josue will also translate everything that Gunter Wetzel told us into English. So you'll hear Mr. Wetzel's German in the background, and then Josue will speak over that with the English equivalent. Mr. Wetzel told us that his desire to escape East Germany was not something that just suddenly came upon him in 1978. His frustration with the GDR had actually been with him for many years before that. It's difficult to pinpoint one particular instance, because it was a chain of events, really. It started early in our childhood with the dissatisfaction we sensed in our parents. Our own experiences in adulthood only increased our dissatisfaction, 
Many of those living in the East Germany felt his way and wanted to leave, but most never found opportunity. Gunther might have never found an opportunity either, had it not been for something that happened during a visit from his wife's sister. His wife's sister had left East Germany back when it was still legal to do so in the 1950s, and she came to visit the Wetzels in early 1978, and she just happened to bring a magazine with her. It was the type of magazine that you couldn't buy in East Germany, and it included a report about a festival happening that year in New Mexico, in the faraway United States. This festival was called the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. It's an event that actually still happens every year in Albuquerque, and this magazine article included some photos of hot air balloons that really caught Gunther's eye. In the back of his mind for many years, Gunther had been thinking about the walls and those fences topped with razor wire that divided east from west. For years, he had wondered how his family, including two very small children, could safely cross over it to escape to West Germany. And suddenly, as he looked at these photos, he believed he might finally have his answer. That's when I thought... Building such a balloon cannot be too terribly hard. We can do it. So the idea was hatched, but at that point it was only a vague and abstract idea. Gunther was what you might call a tinkerer by nature. He was very handy, he loved to figure out mechanical problems, but he had no technical knowledge about building burners and safely operating them, or about safe fuel mixtures or heavy-duty sewing techniques, or how to airproof fabric, or the principles of convection. There was a lot that he didn't know, but he was determined to learn what he needed to learn and to make a valiant effort, if nothing else. Early in the process, Gunther talked to his friend and co-worker, Peter Strelzik. Peter also had a wife and two children, and he also wanted to escape East Germany. And the two of them soon decided that any escape plan had to include all eight of them, the four Wetzels and the four Strelzigs, leaving the country at one time. But before Gunther and Peter could really think much about the technical details of building a balloon big and stable enough to let the eight of them soar over that massive border obstacle, they had to face a different kind of obstacle, their wives, Petra and Doris. Our wives were skeptical and concerned in the beginning, but we made sure that we completely explained our plan. It wasn't easy to convince these young mothers to allow their husbands to risk their lives and the lives of their children by taking them all who knows how high up into the air in a rickety homemade balloon. It also wasn't easy to persuade them to let their husbands risk arrest and imprisonment for even attempting this escape. But Petra and Doris shared in their husband's desire to give their children a brighter future than they ever had. And eventually they came to share their husband's vision and optimism about a safe escape. We convinced them that all of us would be safe. And eventually they just said, let's let our husbands go for it and let's see what happens. With their wives on board, it was time for Gunther and Peter to get to work building a balloon. Gunther says for the main material, they decided to use lining fabric for leather wear, since it was easy in their town to get large quantities of it. And for the stitching, they used a strong thread that was also used for leather work. They cut the fabric into long strips with diagonal ends, 
This pattern minimized the amount of waste material, and it let them use virtually every square inch of the fabric. To stitch those strips together, Gunther used his mother-in-law's Gritzner sewing machine, which was not electric. It was just powered by a foot pedal that you had to repeatedly pump up and down as you were sewing. Gunther says the sewing machine was very old but still reliable, and it was powerful enough to make the double-fold stitches that the balloon required. So for weeks and weeks, they cut the fabric and stitched it together with this antique machine. And with the design that Gunther had come up with, when inflated, the balloon's total size would be just over 60,000 cubic feet. Meanwhile, Gunther and Pater started working on a burner. The burner is really the foundation of a hot air balloon, because it's what makes them fly. Hot air balloons use very basic scientific principles. They capitalize on the fact that warmer air rises in cooler air. That's because hot air is lighter than cool air. It has less mass per unit of volume. So the burner is really what makes the magic happen. It heats enough air to fill the balloon, which is called an envelope in hot air balloon terminology. And once that envelope is filled with warm air, it rises off the ground. And of course, it brings the basket where the passengers stand up into the air with it. And then to keep everything off the ground, you have to have a burner that keeps on propelling more warm air upward into the envelope. So Gunther knew that getting the burner right was immensely important, and he decided to make a propane gas-fired burner. He took a section of stovepipe and connected it to a propane cylinder, and he was able to attach a cylinder valve to it also so that they could adjust how much gas was coming out at a given time. It took quite a lot of work, but they got the burner operational, and then they began to work on the basket. Most hot air balloons use woven baskets because they're very light but very strong, but Gunther and Pater didn't have the material for that, so they used old pieces of angle steel and welded them together to make a basket about four and a half feet by four and a half feet. That's a very small area for eight people to stand on, but they calculated that it would be enough. And they also welded hooks on the top so that they could tie ropes connecting the basket to the envelope. The men both had full-time jobs, but pretty much as soon as they got off work each day, they would rush to get to their balloon. The cutting and sewing and welding and adjusting the burner, getting all the ropes together, there was a lot of work to do, and they often worked late into the night. And then on April 28, 1978, Just about seven weeks after Gunther had first seen those photos in his wife's sister's magazine, it was time to test their balloon. They waited until after midnight and drove to a small forest clearing in Zeigenruck, which was pretty near to the Wetzel's home. And they attempted to inflate the envelope. Petra and Doris held the opening up so that the men could ignite the propane, warm the air, and fill the balloon, but it didn't work. They couldn't get it to inflate at all, and they realized they would have to suspend the balloon, the envelope part of the balloon, from a higher structure if it was going to work. So they decided to haul the whole rig over to a nearby railway bridge. There they thought someone could stand up on top of the bridge holding the top of the envelope while the others worked with the burner below to fill it up. But the bridge was very near to the town of Zeigenruck, and they were afraid they'd be spotted, so they ended up giving up on the bridge idea. They were disappointed the next morning, but Gunther soon realized that the problem was actually 
insufficient airproofing. He saw that too much of the warm air was escaping through the balloon's material and that that was why it wasn't inflating. So they spent several days soaking the balloon with a proofing chemical that would make it hold the air better. And then they made another attempt. Again, they drove out in the middle of the night, this time to a nearby stone quarry. But just after they had spread the balloon out to begin the test, Pater spotted something moving in the shadows close by. They assumed they were being watched, so they stuffed the balloon back into their car as fast as they could and sped off. When they felt that they were no longer in danger, they pulled the car over and took a look at the balloon, and they were devastated to see that about 15 feet of the fabric had been dragging behind the car, and it was torn to shreds. It was a devastating loss, but Gunter says that even if it hadn't been destroyed, they later learned that that first balloon was not large enough to transport the two families. The first balloon was too weak, and it was too small. Everything was wrong with it, but that's how he gained experience. Pater ended up burning the first balloon in his boiler to completely destroy all traces of it. A few days went by, and they eventually felt sure that no one was monitoring them. So around the beginning of May, they started to build a second balloon. This time for the fabric, they decided to use tefeda, which is kind of a silky fabric. It's lightweight and easily airproofed. They knew tefeda would work much better than the lining they'd used on the first balloon, but the problem was tefeda was in shorter supply, and it would look suspicious to suddenly be trying to buy hundreds of square feet of it. So Gunter and Peter traveled to a nearby city where no one knew them, and they bought the material there. Gunter was also able to buy a small motor, which he built onto their sewing machine, and that made the sewing go much faster. Within about six weeks, by the middle of June, they had a new larger balloon ready to test. This one, when inflated, would be about 70,000 cubic feet. So they took it out in the middle of the night, and spent hours trying to inflate it, but they encountered the same trouble that they were having with the first balloon. They couldn't get the warm air to go inside the opening, so they realized then that they would need a blower to channel the air. Otherwise, it was impossible to get the warm air into the envelope's opening. On his blog, ballonflucht.de, Gunter Wetzel describes how they improvised a blowing machine. Once again, I had an idea. I attached the engine from my motorcycle, a 250ZZ, with an output of 14 horsepower. All unnecessary components were removed. Gunter then screwed some metal fins onto it and attached a car muffler to make the device quieter, and then the blower was ready to use. And thanks to the addition of the blower, Gunter and Pater's next test was a complete success. they were able to fully inflate the balloon with no trouble. Before they inflated it, they had taken care to anchor the basket to the ground, or else it would have soared away. And Gunter says that finally seeing the balloon inflated was a very moving experience. Words can hardly describe what we felt in this moment. We were simply overwhelmed by the spectacle before us. We walked around the balloon and were certain that this glowing ball of fire would bring us to the west. 
They still had some problems to work out though. The propane tanks were not working well, so they switched to using gas for the burner. And after figuring out a way to add pure oxygen to the mix, Gunter says they were able to get the flame as high as a three-story house. But to Gunter, it still didn't seem to be enough reliable heat. He and Petra began developing serious doubts about the capability of the burner and about the general size of the balloon. It was larger than the first one, but they were convinced that it was still too small and too poorly powered to be able to float all eight of them over the border wall. Petra was also becoming increasingly concerned about what would happen to them and to their children if an attempted escape was unsuccessful. Gunther explains what their fate would have been. They would have put us adults into prisons, and our children would have been placed into a children's home. The danger was very serious. So Gunther and Petra decided, with heavy hearts, to withdraw from the balloon escape plan. After a few months passed, the Strelzik family used that second balloon to attempt to fly over the wall. But the attempt was unsuccessful. The Vetzels were right that the balloon was just too small, even for only four of them. The Strelziks crashed just a little bit short of the wall, and they had to leave the location of the crash in a great hurry to avoid getting caught. And the Stasi actually found several suspicious items that they left at the crash location. On August 14, 1979, an article was published in the local newspaper, the Volkswagen, asking for information about these suspicious materials that had been found in the forest near that border wall. Gunther says he believes the Stasi had this article published mostly as a scare tactic. Yes, the Volkswacht reported about it. A pipe wrench, a barometer, a knife, and a watch were found. Everybody could buy these kind of things. But I believe the authorities had pictures of these items published in the newspaper to scare us. I believe they did it to give us the feeling that we were being pursued. If this was the Stasi's goal, it worked, in a way. After this news report, Gunther and Petra decided that they were sure to be caught by the authorities if they stayed in East Germany. So they decided to work with the Strelziks once again on a third balloon. And this time, the project took on far greater urgency since the two families were in a panic about getting caught. Gunther was able to get a month off of work for medical leave. This allowed him to devote pretty much all of his time to the balloon. And this third time, once again, they increased the envelope's size. They agreed that it had to be almost twice as big as the second one. That way they could feel sure that it was large and stable enough to get all eight of them over the border wall. And this time, they were more worried than ever about purchasing the fabric and other materials they needed to build it. We were also acutely aware that it would not be as easy this time to acquire the materials. The balloon featured in the newspaper had been found as a result of a failed launch, and we feared that the shop selling the material would need to report large purchases. For this reason, we purchased only small quantities of fabric at a time. They ended up traveling to towns and cities all over East Germany and buying just a few dozen square feet or so at a time. But even though they were taking these precautions, great dread and paranoia had crept upon them. 
In one shop, a sales assistant asked Gunther and Pater to wait while she prepared and cut the fabric. They were sure that this delay meant that they were just about to be arrested. We were overcome with fear and considered leaving, but we didn't and waited patiently for her to come back with the fabric. During the journey home, we looked around constantly and were worried about whether anyone was following. Even after arriving home, this fear persisted, and it took quite some time before we were satisfied that all had gone well. Several other similar situations happened, convincing them that they had been discovered. But it was only paranoia, and it's easy to understand why they were so terror-stricken. In the end, they were not able to get enough taffeta, so they ended up finishing the balloon with several bedsheets and curtains. Sheet and curtain fabric was far from optimal, but they couldn't wait any longer, so they had to use whatever they could get. On September 14th of 1979, Gunther was still working on the envelope, but it was close to being finished. It was rainy that day and the winds were blowing in the wrong direction, but as evening approached, the conditions began to change. It was a stormy day and rained quite a bit. I was still inside sewing, but towards the evening the weather got better. The winds shifted and it stopped raining. The shift in the winds meant that they were suddenly blowing toward the south. That was exactly the direction the balloon would need to travel to float the families to freedom. Suddenly, the weather conditions were perfect for us. That motivated me to speed up my work with the sewing, and I was finished at around 10 o'clock in the evening. A few hours later, the balloon was stuffed into a small trailer behind the Strelzik's car. The two families stood in the Wetzel's kitchen, and the adults had one last cup of coffee. They were about to leave behind everything they had, all the material comforts they'd worked their whole lives to accumulate, their houses and cars, and all their clothes except what they were wearing, and also their friends and family members. And so much was at risk if they didn't make it. But they finished their coffees and set off, and at about 1 a.m., they arrived at the launch site. It was in a clearing in the forest somewhere between Oberlemnitz and Heinersdorf. For half an hour, they sat silently, making sure that no one had followed them. And then they began. They laid the balloon out flat and fastened the metal basket onto it with the ropes. They anchored the whole thing to the ground with four ropes, each of which was tied to a large iron spike sunken into the earth. They took out the blower made from that motorcycle motor and started it up. The sound shattered the heavy forest silence. First it was just cold air being blown into the balloon, but then Pater fired up the burner and shot the flame into the opening, rapidly heating the air up. Within a few minutes the balloon was fully inflated, 60 feet wide and 75 feet high. The taffeta, the curtains, and the sheets of every color. Petra grabbed their sleeping two-year-old son from the car and they all crammed into the basket. This was it. At 2.32 a.m., Gunther and Pater cut two of the four anchor ropes. Just before they could cut the other two, one of the remaining spikes tore out of the ground and struck Peter's son. The balloon started lurching to disaster since only one rope was left tying it to the ground. But Gunther managed to get his knife blade on that last rope and he cut the balloon free. 
The floor beneath them immediately leveled, and they lifted off into the silent darkness. Peter's son was bleeding, but he was okay, and they were very quickly gaining altitude. We soon soared up to an altitude of about 6,500 feet. They were more than a mile off the ground, as a local ornithological station equipped with a radar system later confirmed. But in the dead of the night, there were very few lights that they could see. They had expected to be able to see the border wall beneath them, but there was no sign of it and the balloon had also spun around several times during its ascent, which made them entirely lose their bearings. Suddenly, the beam of a searchlight shot into the air from the border wall, but the light hung just beneath the balloon, and it never ended up spotting them. After 23 minutes, the burner ran out of fuel, and the balloon began losing altitude. As the air cooled, their descent picked up more and more speed. By the time they approached the ground, they were falling far faster than they would have wanted to be. It was a hard landing since we ran out of gas at more than 6,000 feet. From that altitude, we only went downward. But we landed on some shrubs, which might have softened it a little bit. Overall, though, it was a rather tough landing. The landing was jarring, but they were all okay. The question then was, did they make it? Had they reached the West, or were they still in the GDR? They got out of the balloon and started running toward the South, hoping to find some clue that would show them which of the two countries they were in. Finally, they noticed something that gave them cause for hope. It was a clear night, and I saw that the fields which we passed by were quite small. This was not typical for the GDR, since they usually have quite big fields. It was a good sign, but they still weren't sure. They were still terrified that at any moment the Stasi might be upon them, so they kept on running. We then came to a power pole and looked at the sign on it. We didn't recognize the name of the company, so the indications were getting stronger that we had made it. Next, we came to a farm and saw a machine of a brand that we did not have in the GDR. Then we knew that we were in the West. They were finally convinced that the escape had worked. They were free. They had flown over the border wall and over the armed guards and minefields. They were on West German soil in Nela, Bavaria. The desire of Gunther and Petra Wetzel and Peter and Doris Strelzik to give their children a brighter future had prevailed against the oppressive Soviet system. Human ingenuity and the longing to be free had triumphed over communist East Germany. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you'd like to email the show, our email address is tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank Mr. Gunter Wetzel for sharing his time with us, and also Josue Michel for all of his help with this episode. We'll leave you this week with some words about parents and children from Khalil Gibran. 
You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. 